All right. Welcome, everybody. You guys are really spread out. And I've got a big beam in my way. I've been in this room a lot of times, but I never get over this. And I always stand right in front of it and talk about it every year. Um, my name is Brian Vickers. I live here in Louisville. If you're not from here, that's the way you say it. Uh, but I'm not from here originally. My home is in West Virginia. and uh, But I've been here in Louisville for a long time. And I teach right down the road. Yes. Right down the road at a place called Southern Seminary, uh, where I'm a professor of New Testament. I'm not a missions professor, uh, but I do. I've been I've been part of GMHC though. This is I think my 16th year running, so I've been here for a really long time, um, and this is just about my favorite thing to do every year. And so, anybody here for the first time? Oh, well. Maybe I shouldn't add that puts a lot of well, all the pressure is not on me because you'll get a lots of talks, right, that will convince you to come back. So it's late in the day. You've come purposefully to something with the name theology in it. So I'm assuming you're here because you're interested. And what we're going to be talking about today is a theology of missions, which might sound kind of weird at first. Not weird, but like, what do you need to say? Right? I mean, why do we even need to talk about such a thing? called a theology of missions. I mean, done, it's really pretty clear, right? Um, the Bible says go, and so we go. Well, that's true. And I'm sort of a whatever-gets-you-out-the-door kind of guy, in a way. But at the same time, um, I think we want to think about not just sort of how do we build a theology of missions, but how the Bible talks about it. And I just want to say it doesn't talk about it in just terms of you go, Right now, I'm not going to get into between going and sending today. By the way, not at, well. I might at the end, but I don't. What I'm trying to say is, the missions in the Bible is not just go somewhere or even like just do something, because some things have happened to you, right? Uh, that is, you've come to faith in Jesus. Now go do something. Right? Not, I'm not taking that away. There's probably not too many things that you came in the door with today that I would take away from you. Um, but I'm going to say a lot of like, maybe it's not only that. And that's what we want to do. So the title, The Theology of Missions, Knowing, Living, and Telling, right? It's all these things. Uh, knowing, Living, and Telling. By living, I don't even particularly mean what some people refer to as missional. Right? Missional means as many things, as many, depending on how many people use the word. I'm not even going to try to define it. Because it's almost beyond definition now. Uh, because it's like a buzzword. Right? But if you use that's fine. I'm not going to take that away from you either. Uh, but by living, I don't just simply mean, though it would include it, and probably include whatever you mean by it, living missionally. Right? So if you came in the door with that, you're going to leave with that intact. Right? Which you probably would anyway, but what I mean is I'm not going to say anything about it. But it's knowing, living, and telling the mighty works of God. Now, the mighty works of God is a phrase that I've chosen on purpose. Does anybody know where that comes from? It's actually probably not that in your translation. It's the words spoken by those who heard the gospel for the first time. After Peter gets done preaching, right, and they hear everybody in the apostles on, on the day of Pentecost. They say, 
we're all hearing, and they all heard, we all are hearing the mighty works of God in our own languages. So the mighty works of God was how the Peter's gospel that day was summarized. That's what it is. It's the mighty works of God, specifically the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who died on the cross, who was foreknown by God, sent by God as the true son of David, who died on the cross and rose again, and in whose name one can have salvation. Repent and be baptized. Right? The mighty works of God. That's how they summed it up. The message of Jesus was, in fact, the mighty works of God. And that's where I got my title. Right? So I didn't really come up with it myself. So, I travel, used to, in the, in the olden days, used to travel overseas a lot. And um, I, I went to South Asia. I, went, I won't tell you all the places, South Asia, East Asia, mostly. And I was there one time, and I'll never forget, I was on a train going from um, Calcutta, or Kolkata, from up to Siliguri. It was the middle of the night. It was upwards of 175 degrees. I was on the top third, I was on the third, the, the top, like the fourth bunk of the economy. I don't think that's what it's called. Uh, train car. Uh, I was so high up, the fan was below me. The ceiling fan was literally below me. And I'm lying there thinking, right, I mean, it's, it's not one of those biography moments, right, where I'm in my journal journaling about all the great, wonderful things. Like, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm sticking to this plastic. When are we going to get there? I have a headache. It doesn't smell particularly good where I am right now. And I was having this conversation with a guy who full well knew what I do for a living, and he said this to me. I'm so glad that years ago, I decided to become a practitioner instead of a theologian. <laughs> and I literally, said, I literally said, and you also decided not to ever be subtle. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, forgive me, I'm not the most sensitive person in the world, but I could take that personally, maybe. And he said, well, I'm not talking about you. I'm like, what do you mean? You, he, I said, you literally just met me, which is true. He had met me right before we got on the train. And we were traveling together, by the way. We, we were supposed to meet. This wasn't like a random thing. And I said, so who are you talking about? And you know, he just went on to talk about it. But it, that was his big thing, is there's two kinds of Christians. There's the talking kind and the doing kind. Right? And he was the doing kind. And I wouldn't deny that he was. Right? He was there. And I said, well, maybe there's two kinds of Christians. Good theologians and bad ones. And that's it. Because there's no, you can't opt out. Right? Now, you don't, not that, you know, obviously, I understand that there is a job. Right? There is a vocation. And, and I understand that. But I mean, all I mean is this. The minute you open your mouth to say something about God, something about the Bible that's not just quoting a Bible verse, you are engaging in some way in theology, in the way that you say it. Now, it doesn't have to be super high-powered. 
All I mean is, our talk is theological talk. Now, we don't have to label it that all the time. And I'm really aware, right, of different levels of engagement and discourse. I know all about that. But I'm not a big fan of talking about you're either a practitioner or, you know, a theologian. Because when you hear, I mean, I can understand this. You have to understand, I've had my job now for a long time. And so I know the kind of things that come into people's mind. Like when I go preach in churches, which is pretty regular, I always say, don't lead off with, this is Dr. Vickers, he's a professor. And they're like, but that's what you are. I'm like, I know, I'm not ashamed of it, but just just say this is Brian Vickers. That's enough. Because I'm really well aware that when the guy rolls in you've never met before and he's like, today preaching for us is Professor Brian Vickers. I'm like, uh-oh. Right? I've got all these obstacles I've got to tear down now because a practitioner is somebody who's a real person, right? And a theologian is like some egghead. Just talks about stuff. And honestly, there are reasons that these things exist in the minds of people. Right? Again, I've had my job for a long time. I hang around all kinds of people like me. It's not without some warrant that people think this way. I'm not defending, right, my sort of demographic. It's, it's just if I get it, right? Or people will be like, I'm interested in real world things. Like, okay. I mean, I am too. I mean, I don't sort of float back and forth between the matrix and the real world, I don't think, right? But I mean, I, but I understand. Ivory Tower, that's the other thing. Mine's brick, and it's not a tower. But I get it. So what is theology? Well, sometimes you'll hear this, and this is fine. People will say it's theology, right? Which doesn't really sound all that cool to say it that way, right? When people are like, it's theology. You're like, don't just say it, right? What does that mean? It's God talk. Like, okay, okay, it is. And I'm not making fun of that. But it's one of those things that kind of gets a lot of, mm, but doesn't really say much. Right? It gets a lot of those, mm. You know what I mean? You've been to those, oh, sorry, I'm not going to say anything else. I have a bad habit of, yeah, I have a bad habit of saying more than I should. Right? So, it is, it is, it is. It is talk about God for certain, it is. It's talking about God. Okay, but, theology is Christian belief about God and his ways and works as taught in scripture. In other words, it's not just talking about God. It's you can't talk about God without talking about God and who he is and what he does. It's not just, uh, just this, you know what I mean? You can't separate those two things out. God doesn't reveal himself in the Bible as just, I'm God. Here's some things I do. Right? They're always connected together. No matter what we're talking about. Same thing with missions, by the way, if you think, I thought we were here for missions. Theology is our spoken and or written expression of those beliefs. That's what we're doing. When we're doing, when we're talking about missions, the theology of missions, it is, theology is our expression of that. Now, oops, got ahead of myself. You already know what's coming. Can I have myself again? Oh, I'm next to I've already ruined it. When you think of, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have said I've been here 16 years. I should have said, this is my first time ever also speaking in public, first time. 
When you think of missions, certainly you think of the Great Commission. Am I right? I'm right. And you should. I'm not one of those people who like bait you into saying something so I can then be like, ah, I gotcha. Because you absolutely should think of the Great Commission. Right? But one of the issues is, is sometimes we think of missions, and I think it was, I think it was, um, a guy who wrote a book called, um, The Mission of God, Christopher Wright, who said something like this. We all kind of have a group of texts in the Bible that we refer to as missions texts. And we kind of learn those, and then that's what we think of as missions. As though, as though missions exist in like a list of verses. Right? I'm, again, if you have a, if you have some such list, absolutely keep it. Memorize it. Absolutely. But I think missions in the Bible, a theology of missions, needs to be more than even just quoting the Great Commission. I'm not saying there's greater things than the Great Commission. But we all know it. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Absolutely. It's probably the first thing that always comes to mind. That and maybe several other verses. And that's good. The more the better. But I would just, all I want to say is, all I want to consider today is that a theology of missions, again, is more than just having an arsenal of verses. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Missions in the Bible is hardwired into a big extended story of what God is doing in the world that goes way, way, way back. So if you're here, if you're here and you're interested in missions, which I'm supposing you are, given the name of the conference, do you have some vested interest in missions, right? Or you know whatever that might be, and there's lots of different ways to live that out. There's not just one way. When we think of missions. We need to consider it in light of how it is hardwired to what God has been doing and what he promised he would do all along from the beginning. So that when we think about our involvement in missions, I'm just going to give the end away. We think about our involvement in missions, it's not just knowing some stuff in the Bible about missions, which is good. I'm all for knowing stuff in the Bible. But it's not just about knowing some things about missions. It's not just about having a reason to go into missions, which you need one. It's understanding that missions is not just this thing that exists for some people to do. Like, as only a career. It is hardwired into exactly what God has been up to and his plan from before time to do in Jesus. Going way, way, way back. So in other words, missions didn't pop up in Matthew 28 in the first century. It, everything was pointing to it. And I'll show you what I mean. But Richard Bauckham says this, and I like this statement. We all instinctively understand the world by telling stories about it, right? And when you get together with people, essentially what you do is you tell them stories about yourself. And they tell you stories about themselves. And it's like a competition who can tell the most stories about themselves. Because we all like hearing stories, we all like telling them. Now, 
By the way, just as one caveat, I'm not going to comment on this further. I'm not suggesting that there's like a multitude of different sorts of various community formed stories in the Bible. I'm talking about a story, one story. If the Bible offers a meta narrative, that's just a you know big story a story of all stories, then we should be able to place our own stories in it. This is, the, this is the point I want to make today. We should be able to place our own stories within that grand narrative and find our perception and experience of the world transformed by that connection. In other words, when we talk about a theology of missions, we're not just talking about something that we just sort of objectively describe. We're talking about something that we are absolutely called to take our place in. Which doesn't, by the way, I'm not at the end of this, I'm not going to say one of those crazy things like, when you know what's happening in the world, what are you doing here and not there? I, I've been to those kind of things before, right? And I'm, that's not where I'm going to end, just in case you're worried. I'm not going to end there at all. But missions is not just something we know about. It is all about taking our place in the story of God. That's not just a story about people who lived a long, long time ago, right? On a continent far, far away, that we just know about. And now we do our life because we know stuff about them. It's actually something that we are called to take part in. It's a story that we're called to take part in, not just know about. Because it's not just the information that we build on to become something. The Bible is not just the information that we gather so that we can have a manual for our life and how to live our life. Right? It's not our owners. It's not the user manual. For Christians. I'm not saying it's of no use. It's, but it's more than that. So here's the story. I also have a challenge for you later. Try to summarize the Bible in one PowerPoint page. And then be satisfied with it. You can do the first. You can never do the second. So. God created the world and created human beings who rebelled against him. Attempting to become the one thing they could never be. Right? Right? I mean, this is the thing. Their creator, their creation, sorry, they're created. God's the only creator. And Satan says what? God knows that you'll be just like him. The one thing they can never do. Ever. Just by design. The one thing that we could never, ever, ever be, even with an infinite amount of time, we can never be God. Right? It is way above our pay grade. And we can never rise above it. See, I just added my story. That's the subtle way you do it. You write it, and then you just keep talking page after page. That is created rather creatures. And then he set about carrying his eternal plan, eternal plan, to redeem them through his son Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God's ultimate eternal plan was to what? Sum up everything in Jesus. Jesus is in plan B. That's what God is. He just says it. To sum up everything in Christ Jesus. And through him, that is Jesus. To create a people who would believe, obey, and worship the only true God and make his good news of life in Christ known to a world in rebellion. And finally, to establish fully his kingdom in a new heaven and new earth with Christ the King reigning forever. So that's, that's the story. Now, there's so much more that needs to be added to that. Right? Now, on the other hand, though, you know, if you wanted, you could sort of tell somebody, they say, when's the last time you read the Bible? You'd be like, Friday. I mean, it's not really the whole Bible, but I mean, it's sort of, you know, there you go. So it's like your annual, but today is Friday, right? 
You get it? I'm saying it. Never mind. That didn't work. Okay. Onwards and upwards. Here's where the story of, here is where the story of the Great Commission begins. I'm telling you. This is where it begins. You know this story. Now notice, this is the story of, this is where the story of Abram, a guy that is later called Abraham, you're like, wow, we're going way back. Are we even going to make it? We will. You know him as Abraham, and you also know that at first his name was Abram. Now, what's the first thing you ever... The first thing that you read about Abram is so unremarkable that if you had never read the Bible before, you would immediately forget him. Immediately. Because it's clear, you're done with this guy. What did genealogies do? I mean, beside make your daily Bible reading really fast that day. What do they do? Functionally. Right? So it's a list, like obviously the most basic thing is, it's a list of where people came from, all the relatives, you know, and sort of where they're going, how we got to where we are now. Now, another thing, this is free with the class. Another thing is, when you're reading those huge genealogies, like in numbers, remember what you're reading are names, lists and lists and lists and lists and lists of God being faithful to his people. It's not just a boring list of names. You're getting this huge list at the beginning of the book of Numbers because it is a testimony that God has made them a great nation. It's not just a list of like, oh my goodness. On one hand, I'm happy that my Bible reading is going fast today. On the other hand, enough with the names. They testify to something. This, test, this, this genealogy also testifies to something. It testifies to the hopelessness of this guy called Abram. It testifies to him having zero future. None. You've probably read it by the time I've been talking this whole time. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. But look at the end of it. This is Abram's wife. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now just for a moment. I don't think this is a great practice to do all the time or much at all. But if you were a careful reader of the Bible for the first time. This would not be the first time you've seen a list of names. But when you're like, what would you just think when you saw now Sarai was barren, she could have no children? Who would be the last person you expect to be on the next page? Abram or Sarah? Right? They're done. That's the backdrop. It's hopeless. Right? The whole human race up to this point has been a downward spiral. A downward spiral. A Bible reader up to, the, up to Genesis 11 is not going to have a whole lot of hope that the human race is going to pull themselves out of this. The hope that you have is way back in Genesis 3.15, where God promises that a seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That's it. You have that promise, and then you have this testimony of the human race getting progressively worse. And a flood doesn't make them better. And then you have the story of this guy. And by the way, he's old. And we'll hear how old he is soon. But then you turn the page. And then God says to this guy, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do not forget Genesis 11 when you read this. 
Because what is one of the main, if not the main ingredient that's going to be needed for this promise to happen? You're going to need a kid, right? At least. But we've just already known, already found, already known, we've just already found out, we, ju- we just found out, third time's a charm, that this is not going to happen. It is against the backdrop of hopelessness that God appears on the scene, not for the first time, obviously, and picks this guy. And why? Who is Abraham? Is he something special? No. There is no indication in the Bible that Abraham is anything special. He lives over in a place called Ur, where, generally speaking, it was filled with idol worshipers. There is no reason to think that Abram was anything but that. Now, there is some... There, I shouldn't even mention it. There's no point. I mean, I can mention it. I just don't want to take a lot of time. There are some uh, There are some texts that you can find, ancient texts that claim that before God came to Abraham, Abraham had already burned up his father's, his father's idols or destroyed his household idols and was looking for the true God. Uh, the problem is, is those were not written until... Uh, well, at the earliest, at the earliest, sort of the late part of the time between the the, the of the second temple period, between well, think of it this way: between Malachi and Matthew, no evidence in the Old Testament period that Abram was anything special. What's special about Abram is God calls him. The only other thing that's special about Abraham is he's got no future. At least not with his current wife. And then that's exactly who God comes and says, through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Now, take one step back. The nations, well, in sort of a biblical timeline way, are not that old. I mean, they're old. But they had pretty recently been created. How? The tower. Right? God curses them because they're like, we're going to make our own way. We're not going to go out into all the world. Right? We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to follow the mandate of God to, to spread and be fruitful and multiply. We're going to put our anchor down right here. Right? That's the big, that's the big sin at the tower. Is rather than be fruitful and multiply, putting our anchor down right here and making a name for ourselves. Build a tower for our greatness. Right here. This far and no farther. And then the nations are born out of that. Out of that sin. And then God says, through you, Abram, who can't have a kid because your wife is barren, but it's not, you'll find out, Abraham is not super hopeful either. Because one of the things you're going to find out pretty soon is, he has reached his sell-by date. Right? So, it's not like he's firing on all cylinders, and it's like, oh, I can have kids of one for you. And he's old. And he just keeps getting older. And then many, many years go by. Like somewhere around somewhere around 25 years or so. Now, I don't know about you. It takes me far less than 25 years before I start to doubt a promise. I'm upwards of like 25 minutes before I'm like, oh, maybe I didn't get that right. 25 years, right? And so Abram, he's like, I got no kids. I do have this kid, Eleazar. He's in my household. 
I'm just going to give everything to him. And God shows up and says, Abraham. And then Abraham says to God, what will you give me? Because Now, I'm telling you, Abraham knows full well that he has to have a child. And he knows full well that God has promised him to him. And God comes and says, don't worry, I'm your shield and your reward. Your reward will be very great. Now, that's really significant because Abraham has just recently been involved in defeating some really super powerful kings. And so God comes and says, I am the God who promised you everything. I am the God who is on your side. I am the God whose perfect track record for the past can be trusted, which guarantees my promise for the future so that you can believe in the present. That's what biblical faith is. I mean, dude, there's a lot of things we could say, right? But one way to think about it is, it is God's perfect track record in the past guarantees his promise for the future so that you can believe, persevere in the present. And that's what Abraham's called to do. He's called to persevere. And he's called to persevere, and God even says, I'm your shield. And in Abraham's recent life, he has every reason to believe that. But you notice, though, Abraham's called to believe without the evidence of having a child. And so Abraham believes God, and God counts that belief in God as righteousness. Why? Because faith did what? Faith connects Abraham to the source of his righteousness, and it is that that God counts as righteousness. It's not like faith is a work or something like that. Faith is what connects him to the object of his faith. And guess what happens? More time goes by and Abraham doesn't have a child. A lot of time goes by. And then he finally has a child. And now I'm not going to retell the whole story. But you know, obviously, Abraham's child, Isaac. Ultimately, from Isaac, you get what? You get Abraham's grandchildren that are born in really strange circumstances, right? I mean, like, there's, there's wombs opening and closing. And children being born... And when these kids get older, right, they don't show themselves to be like, you know, super awesome. But God's keeping this promise to Abraham, right? The whole bunch of them goes into slavery into Egypt. They're finished. They look finished, right? I mean, at first they go there for a decent reason, but, you know, things are not really looking up. But God continues to keep his promise to Abraham. And he does so throughout the whole entire Old Testament. However, missions as we know it was not a thing in the Old Testament. Now this is super controversial. What shouldn't, it's not super, it's a little controversial. There is no missions as we know it in the first, in, in the Old Testament. Not in the Great Commission type of way. Israel is essentially called to be Israel where they are. That's essentially what they do. They're to stay in the land, be faithful, be holy, and be Israel. And then God still keeps his promises, though. God hasn't forgotten, but there's things that are coming. Now, there is, though, hardwired into genealogies as well, the Old Testament, these... I don't know how much this is the best way to put it. Where the, the bloodlines of Abraham's children start to include the nations. Like Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? 
That is a really strange story, right? With Judah, one of his you know, grandchildren. Great. And then Rahab at Jericho. And, you know, I don't know if you know what her profession was, but, you know, she was a prostitute. And then Ruth, who is not of the line of Abraham. And then Naaman the Syrian is one. The Shumanite woman is the other. Uriah the Hittite is another. Now, by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Those three names will show up in somebody else's genealogy down the line. I mean, and you know who. It's the correct answer to all the Sunday school questions. There you go. Yeah, see? It's always... I don't know why we say it's always right, because there's sketchy questions asked in Sunday school sometimes where the correct answer is not Jesus. But here's the thing. Now, I haven't mentioned everybody, but think how big the Old Testament is. And think how many people are mentioned in the Old Testament... This isn't a complete list, but it's there's not a whole lot of other people you could add to this as non-Israelite believers. I'm not saying they don't exist, and I'm not saying there's not more, but one of the things that strikes me here is we see it. It's in there, this inclusion of the nations, but not yet. Not yet. So Israel has a mission, that is to be Israel, I've already said this, right? But this is Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. You may follow them, right? Uh, I've taught you my decrees and laws, so you may follow them. In the land, in the land you're entering, take possession of it, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, by you staying here and you doing your thing, as I've told you. I'm not saying there is no, not ever any going out, it's just, it's impossible in my mind to argue that there's like an Old Testament great commission and go go into all the world. Like that is your number one job, period. That's just not happening yet. And it's not happening yet for a reason, by the way. But it's still in there. It's hardwired in. Psalm 86.9 All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. There it is. It's there. Isaiah 12.4 In that day, in other words, there's something coming. And in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call His name, make known among the nations what He has done. In that day. And this is in the day when God acts decisively on behalf of His people. And proclaim that His name is exalted. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of them who survived. The survive, that means like the, um, the, like the remnant. Sometimes we refer to the word remnant. Isaiah uses the word survivors a lot, survivors of Israel. I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, famous as archers. I don't know why I love that comment. To Tubal and Greece and to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. I'm not saying that this never, ever happens in any way, shape, or form, but 
This is clearly pointing to something that's coming. What it's pointing to, the thing that's coming, is the message that they're going to take out. Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? And it starts to move. Um, it starts to move from one to the many. Right? In the whole, if you think about the Bible, you start with Adam. It branches out to more people like the nations, and then you have the creation of the nations, then down to Abraham, then to Israel, then to Jesus, then to the nations. This is a, this, a recurring pattern all the way throughout the Bible, building and building and building and building and building. From like one to many, one to many, one to many. And sometimes the one is like a whole nation, but still one. God's people, Israel. Then, a long, long, long time later, this couple, who is just a normal couple, there's nothing special about them. Now, this is centuries and centuries and centuries later. This couple walks into the temple one day, and they have an eight-day-old baby who is everything that an eight-day-old baby is doing. Whatever an eight-day-old baby does, looks like, smells like, everything, that baby is like that. He's not like a floating, pastel, halo baby that they just sort of bring in. He's just, you know, he's not. He's a baby. And I'll tell you this, it's extraordinarily important for you that he is. A baby just like that. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. But he is, a, and he, and yeah, for your sake and for my sake, he needs to be a baby like that and not a floating halo baby. And he comes in, he's a baby. I don't know if you've ever been around a newborn baby. You've at least seen one. Right? You can hold a newborn baby in one hand. And this, this guy, Simeon, holds a baby. Now think about it, a baby. Now, this is not like, look at this huge army. Look at all these chariots. Look at these horses. Look at the weapons we have. Look at everything. I mean, it is now is the time. God is getting ready to unleash on these people and save us. He looks at a baby. He holds a baby. A baby you can hold in one hand. And he says, this is it. This is everything. Now, that is, that is mind-boggling. He sees, he sees in the baby all of God's promises. All of them. All of them. Incarnate. In, the, in a baby. That, that can only do eight-day-old baby stuff. And he says, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then Paul will later write, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, but he doesn't say into seeds, it's referring to many, but rather to the one and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul is hardwiring the story of Abraham to the coming of Jesus, who is the one proclaimed in the gospel. Now, now when we think about the Great Commission, what we're being called to do is to go out into the world to share a story that we have been folded into by faith. The story that God is going to send one who will bring everything to rights. And in whom 
God will save his people, and in whom God's glory and proclamation and message of salvation, blessing to the nations will go out. So when we're called, when we're called to go into all the world and make disciples, we are essentially doing what? Taking our place in this story that we ourselves are part of. That we have been called into. Not just to tell people a story about stuff that happened a long time, but it did. It absolutely, positively, on every level, historically happened. But we're not just giving people, here's some facts about what happened. We're, we're taking our place in that because we're inheritors of that. If you are sitting here today and claim the name of Jesus, if you call on Jesus as Lord, it is because God has kept his promise to Abraham. And so what we're doing is we're going out and telling, maybe this is what you would lead with, is that God has kept his promise to this man in the desert centuries and centuries and centuries ago. So in other words, the Great Commission is not just sort of icing on the cake. Right? You've got stuff in the Bible, now Great Commission. Right? It is the story of God's redemption in Christ. And we're called to that. Not, again, not just to know a lot of things about it. Now, and it all began with a great biblical question. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But do you remember, now this gets back to my distinction between Old Testament mission and New Testament missions. Do you remember um, this question the disciples say, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And everybody, for whatever reason, a lot of people look at this, they see the disciples still asking dumb questions. They still don't know. Well, Jesus had just been teaching about the kingdom for 40 days. What does it say if they're still reeling out dumb questions? But the thing is, he doesn't rebuke them. The thing is, is they ask the best biblical and theological question I've ever heard. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, how long will I bear with you? He doesn't respond in that way. But you can read this. You can read about how this, we talk about this all the time. Jesus just says, no, 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 no. It's not for you to know, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth gives them their marching orders. Exactly what happens in the book of Acts. But he doesn't say that's a stupid question. He basically says, it's not for you to know the exact times. Just go. And you'll see. Why? Because the disciples knew, Ezekiel 37, that when the Messiah comes, when God acts on behalf of his people, well, the first thing he's going to do is rejoin the kingdom. And then what? Behold, see the, the, the uh, yellow part? I'm about to take the stick of Joseph. That's in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom. And I will join them in one stick of Judah and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And then Isaiah he says the same thing. The tribes of Jacob, preserved of Israel, northern southern kingdom. I will make you as the light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God creates a new people in Jesus. The kingdom is reconstituted by faith in Jesus, including all people, including the nations. And that's the event that they're waiting for. right? That's the mission that takes place. And then the mission breaks out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And it all goes back to this guy who was eventually, soon, passed his sell-by date and his wife who couldn't have a child. And the God who promised them life in the midst of hopelessness. And then it goes on out. I'm gonna, I'll speed up now. 
If you read the book of, if you read the book of uh, Acts, it starts in Jerusalem and ends with Paul in Rome, which, you know, obviously everybody at the time understood that there was more world beyond Rome, but the essential idea is this. I mean, Rome, there's a good reason why we have the statement, all roads lead to Rome. That's where, by the way, where is Paul when he writes, when he dies? In prison. It doesn't look like a super hopeful thing, right? When one of your main leaders is dying in prison. But it continues on. Adam to the nations, nations to Abraham, Abraham to his, his children Israel, Israel to Jesus, Jesus to the nations. In one story, one big story that encapsulates every story, including your story. Now we're going to really fast forward with a rather sloppily done um, timeline that I stole from someone. And then I had to listen to it like 90 times to get it all right. This is not original to me. 49, Paul's in Turkey. 51, Paul's in Greece. 52, Thomas, by church tradition, goes to India. 54, Paul's third journey. 174, Christians in Austria. 280, Christians in northern Italy. 350, 50% of the Roman Empire claims Christianity. I know all about that, but still. Uh, 432, Patrick goes to Ireland. 496, Augustine, that's not saint. Um, That's a different one. Goes to England. Uh, There's something around 10,000 Christians two years later. Uh, 635 Christians uh, ago, or to to China, or yeah, to main, what we now call mainland China. Uh, Irish missionaries arrive in Iceland. 900 missionaries arrive in Norway. 1,200 Bible in 22 languages. 1498 Christianity spread to Kenya, and then this is really fast. The Jesuit mission to the Reformation, right? Which is not the Jesuit mission, by the way. Um, modern missions movement. Through up through the Puritans, I'm just taking one one path. I had to choose one. Uh, immigrants, Great Awakening, Westward Expansion, Louisville, Kentucky, today, right? And so obviously I've cut a lot of corners, and there's lots of different ways I could have got there, but that's just me in a hurry there at the end. And the whole point is not that this is, I mean, the when the numbers are up there, it's pretty accurate. The whole point is, we are sitting here today talking about these things, but not because we're just people who know some objective facts about some stuff that happened a long time ago. We are people here today because the disciples went out into all the world, making disciples of all the nations and proclaiming forgiveness in the name of Jesus, who is the true seed of Abraham, who is the promised seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And that's why I started with, right, the story of missions on one level is the story that we are all living. And it's within that life that we've been given that we then think about how we're going to take our place specifically in it. Which can, which means it can look like any number of things. Now, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not one of those people who calls everybody a missionary. Because it, when, when words mean everything, they just stop meaning anything. I mean, I get it on one level, right? I understand that. But, you know, right now, I have a friend who, he's not from here, but he's from one place in South Asia, and he is, um, he has left where he's from in South Asia and has gone to another place in South Asia, right? Because it's not on his radar, like he's going to cross the seas. He does That doesn't make sense. Like, you know, he's like, I'll just go, like, 
one state over, right? I'm, I don't have to get on a plane. Besides, I can't. And right now, he and his group of pastors are about one month ago, most of them were drug out of their pulpits. But they're all there having come, having traveled from one state or one country, I guess, to another. I'm trying to be vague because I can't really. I'm, I've been super vague. It's not like you could pinpoint this. But he think he understands that he is like he's like this is how I do missions. And I'm not going to stand here and say, well, I, and look at him and be like, well, I do it too. Everybody's a missionary. I mean, I understand the idea, and but I'm, so I'm not doing away with like titles or you know or or, or vocational vocational titles. At the same time. We are all called, we're all part of this story. We all are. If you claim the name of Jesus, this is your story. It's the same story that we proclaim. So that we're all taking part in it in some way. But the great news is, you don't have to be like somebody else to fulfill your role in this story. God already has plenty of that other person. Right? You don't have to be the next person that somebody writes this, like, you know, all-star biography about. You can literally just be you where God has you. Doesn't mean you won't go anywhere else. You can literally just be you where God has you and live as a light to the nations around you, including the nation that you're in, which is among the nations. We do need to remember that at some point Jerusalem wasn't moved geographically to a new starting point. Right? I mean, we did get here, and it didn't, didn't, didn't become like the new modern sending point, right? We're here because we got swept in, caught in to this story, right? And the, the great news is, though, is the more we can think of missions as being hardwired to God's story of redemption in Jesus, I think the better we'll be at having a theology of missions, right? Regardless of how we're involved in it. Because we'll start to see, you know what? It's not just knowing some things and becoming something. It is about understanding who I am and why I am and how I got to be here. So I hope, I know it hasn't been exhaustive, maybe exhausting, hopefully not though. I hope it's been helpful just to think about it this way. And again, I am all for, I really, really am one of those, you know, as long as, you know, this is, I don't want to boil it down too much. I really am a big fan of if that, whatever gets you out the door. I am. And so, again, I'm not taking any of those things away. But I hope it's been helpful, though, just to think about missions, because we're all here, to whatever degree, interested in various ways, just to see it, again, as part part and parcel of God's big story in the Bible, right? that you are a part of, because you call in the name of Jesus the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Thank you for your time. And I got my I got my ten minutes is up too, ten minutes to go. If you have any questions or you want to ask me anything, that's fine. I know it's been a long day, and some of you probably you're, it's not one of those things where you you can't leave. I won't be offended if you leave, but if you want to ask me any questions, I'm happy to do that. Or if you anything you want to talk about, be glad to do it. But thank you. I know it's late in the day, but glad you could be here at GMHC. And I can also, if anybody wants it, I can post my slideshow for what it's worth on the website.